and welcome to the 2020 Writers' Trust Award, Career Honours Edition. Like a lot of other gatherings in our lives these days, the Writers' Trust has gone digital this year to award more than $300,000 to Canadian writers. In this series of interviews, prize jurors from each of the Writers' Trust Career Awards will be talking to recipients about their lives as writers, their work, and what's next for each of them. My name is Timothy Taylor. I'm a writer, journalist, and creative writing professor living in Vancouver. This year, I served on the Writers' Trust Engel Findlay Award jury alongside writers Subankum Mavongsa and Kathleen Winter. This award is presented to a Canadian writer in mid-career, not for a single book, but for a body of work that anticipates future contributions. While this award comes with a prize of $25,000, it's equally important in its endorsement of the author's craft and courage. I'd like to thank the sponsor of this year's Writers' Trust Engel Finley Award, Donald Schmidt of Diamond Schmidt Architects. In a year as uncertain as this one, it's so encouraging to have supporters of Canada's literary community stepping up in such a significant way. Thank you for your continued support of the Writers' Trust. And with that, I'd like to introduce this year's Engel Finley Award winner, Carrie Sakamoto. Carrie is a writer of remarkable gifts. Like other readers, I first encountered her work in the novel The Electrical Field, an enthralling and beautifully written story of a Japanese-Canadian internment camp survivor who struggles with the spreading moral dilemmas surrounding the murder of his friend. The Electrical Field was widely honored, including Commonwealth Writers Prize, a finalist spot with the Governor General's Literary Award, and the Kiriyama Pacific Rim Book Prize. Over subsequent years, Carrie has brought us two other very distinct literary works, 100 Million Hearts, and most recently, the novel Loading City, which won a Canada-Japan Literary Award in 2018. What's really striking to me about these novels is the distinctiveness of the worlds they beckon their readers to occupy, both the physical and the psychological landscapes that the characters are asked to and yet in each case, Carrie evokes the atmosphere and the characters' struggles within them with elegant lyricism and unwavering grace. As the jury wrote about Carrie's work, these are unapologetic and meticulous excavations of the human heart and the dilemmas of personal history. We're really lucky to have Carrie as a part of the literary conversation in Canada, and I feel lucky to sit down and chat with her today. Welcome, Carrie, and congratulations once again. Thank you so much. Carrie, take us back to the beginning. Are you one of those writers who scribbled from very early on, or do you have do you remember other first inklings of the idea that you might be a writer? Uh, I think it all goes back to grade three and Mrs. Schmidt's class, um, where I wrote a story called How to Make a Stuffed Doll Out of a Sock. <laughs> and uh, and I and I and the teacher read it out loud in class at uh, parent teacher night and my my mom was especially proud and um, and then and, and she was really encouraging after that she was like a stage mom <laughs> no but I think uh, seriously I I think I always was interested in language and the potential of language to tell stories and just um, convey sensations and emotions. Yeah, so I think I would say very early on, it was set. And then the first publication in book form is The Electrical Field. And, and this it is a magnificent book. It's intricate, it's personal, it's enthralling. And it comes out to very significant acclaim. The 
their prizes and the finalist positions that it won. How important was it for you to start fast, or does it feel fast when you think back? Um, well, it. let's see, I have to say there was a long gap between grade three and the publication of that book, <laughs> which was in 1998. And uh, it felt like it took my whole life to write that book because it really, um, you know, it was sort of um, tied up with my own um, involvement in community work, um, working on um, the redress movement that sought compensation and, and restitution for the internment of Japanese Canadians. And um, I don't think I could have written the book without going, having gone through that experience. And, and actually I worked alongside um, Roy Kagawa um, and had, had read her book, her incredible seminal work, Obasan. And, um, and she sort of took me under her wing both as an activist um, and um, and uh, and you know, kind of as a as a, a model of a, a writer and um, sort of um, breaking ground, you know, groundbreaking kind of writer. And um, yeah, so so when the book came out, I guess it was yes, it was the shock that it was it was. Um, uh, it received so much attention, but it was gratifying because I think, you know, the historical dimension of the story um, was really um, important to audiences, to media, um, and um, it, it cast new light on, on internment. And, um, and I was really interested in writing about the residue of that experience on my generation. Um, and how it was passed down from my parents and my grandparents, um, and that kind of keeping of secrets, and how it how it still seeps into your psyche. A, a writing colleague in Vancouver once said to me, uh, "Every novel teaches you how to write it." Um, one thing that I that I mentioned that has struck me about your work is the distinctiveness of the novels. And I wondered if you could comment a bit on the process of writing them. So you've described uh, the birth of the electrical fields in work that you did as an activist. Um, how did you go from there? What was the way that you structured your approach to this novel? Um, well, I should say it also, uh, the process involved uh, a sort of pilgrimage to um, the site of the, of the camps where my father and my mother had been interned during um, during the war in, in the interior of British Columbia. And uh, um, and that was um, that was kind of difficult for them. In fact, my my mother really didn't didn't want to um, you know she didn't want to to stay very long on the site of at the site of the camp where she had been um, uh, which was called Tashmi, which I write about in Floating City um, because of um, I think because of the pain of having lost her her brother there, her brother died in a camp in an accident in the camp, and there weren't any medical facilities, and, um, and he died kind of a painful death. Um, and she was just fifteen. That's such a, a you know formative age, and 
I think that really affected her. Um, you know, it, it shaped her, her, her life and her character. So that was a really, um, you know, it was a very emotional and meaningful experience to go through with my parents because it wasn't easy for them. Um, uh, but then uh, I guess I, I, with that book, I really wanted to do something with a, an unreliable narrator who really wasn't able to tell her story in a straightforward way, because I think that's something that happens to people who are survivors of trauma. Um, they don't, they're not able to just speak openly about their experiences. How did that differ from 100 Million Hearts, for example? I, I wonder if you could talk to me about the kernel of that book, where um, it's, it's not so much where the idea come, came from, but at what point had it clustered to the point that you knew it was a novel? And then how did you proceed forward with that, with that material? Um, well, again, that kind of arose out of family history. Um, uh, I have two, I had two older uncles who've now passed away, but they were, um, before the war, they were sent back to Japan. They were born in Canada, but they were sent to Japan to be raised by my grandparents because uh, their grandparents, sorry, because my grandparents were very poor. And they were sent to Japan to be raised there. And when the war um, broke out, um, they were not able to return. And they spent um, the years there. One of them worked in, in intelligence um, because he could speak some English. Um, and so I really was thinking about how, um, you know, you think about immigrants traveling in one way from east to west in this case. And, but we don't think about how um, people's lives take different turns. And, uh, and I thought about the experience of being in Japan for someone who was Canadian born and being caught there and caught between allegiances. Um, and also not, not fully of the culture. Um, so that was, so 100 Million Hearts was really born out of that and in the most intense kind of experience of war uh, there in Japan was the experience of the, the suicide pilots. Now, to a slight, in, in a way, it feels like a departure, some of the dreamlike quality that pervades um, Floating City. And when I think about uh, a writer writing a novel like that, I sort of almost wonder if it came to them in a dream. Have you been interested in architecture for a long time, Buckminster Fuller, uh, or, or where was where was that born? Um, well, okay, so Buckminster Fuller came to me because a good friend of mine who's an architect, um, a Japanese-Canadian architect, Bruce Colvera, he happened to tell me about the fact that um, Bucky, um, had um, proposed a floating city, a floating community for Toronto Harbor back in 1970. Um, and uh, of course it never been built. And I was so shocked that it actually got to the point of being presented to city council. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, so there was that fanciful thing, but it was the idea of a kind of um, utopian community because the camp was the ultimate dystopian community. Um, and, um, so I think it, it grew out of that and yes, I have had an, uh, an interest in, in architecture. 
um, my 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 father-in-law is actually an architect, uh, retired now. He he was the lead architect for the um, Scotiabank Plaza in Toronto. Um, but the idea of skyscrapers and space and um, and this is something we're thinking about now with COVID, all these empty office towers, and at the same time, homeless people. So the idea of how people uh, choose to use resources, um, the idea of everyone being entitled to shelter and a quality of life, um, uh, it's just um, been important to me. Books, books take time. You and I both know this. and I. Talk to me about uh, living with a novel for a long time, keeping, sustaining it, watching it evolve and change. What, what your experience has been in that regard? Oh, well, my books take a long time. <laughs> and I have to say, I, it, the writing took longer after I got married and had a family. Um, uh, but, you know, but it was worth it. <laughs> um, but um, I think I really need uh, space to ruminate in my head. And, and that's, it's difficult when you have children, um, if you have demanding children and, but at the same time, they take you into their worlds. And I think that's, you know, really why Floating City took on this sort of magic realist um, dimension of um, a wider world of ideas. Um, and I did really want to take the book out of um, out of just the experience of one community and that history and something beyond and to something around future possibilities. Um, and Buckminster Fuller is just still so relevant, his ideas, and even more so right now. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, he built the geodesic dome. He was the inventor of the geodesic dome. Um, the American Pavilion at Expo 67. And that um, geodesic dome is the same, based on the same mathematical um, or ge geometrical kind of um, patterning as the shell of um, the virus, of, including COVID, the COVID virus. So, which speaks to how, you know, we need to share information across disciplines and ideas from like, you know, uh, architecture, fiction, storytelling, science, you know, so all of this is really exciting to me. And I, I, I feel like Bucky really became my friend and he actually had such an affinity for Japan and Japanese culture and island cultures in general. How much did you have to learn? How much research was involved? Or did a lot of this come from sort of your organic interests prior to starting the novel? Tell us, tell us a bit about the research practice. Well, um, well, it was a little daunting because Bucky was incredibly prolific. He actually kept this um, archive, which is he called a chronophile that's uh, somewhere in California. Um, and uh, in which he, he kept every piece of ephemera, including like uh, plane tickets and snobs from restaurants. He, he, he did this incredible kind of self-documentation and, and a kind of self-mythologizing, I guess. So there was a lot, a lot of material. Um, but um, I think he, um, he, he also 
um, he's, it struck a chord with me because um, a lot of his ideas um, I could see reflected in my father's ways. Um, and the idea of making do with what you have or um, and he had this, um, his maxim was do more and more with less and less until you do everything with nothing. So, you know, the ultimate, ultimate, you know, extreme. And, um, and I feel like my father was an example of that, of doing something. He also, Bucky also said his own life was an, it was a kind of experiment in, um, taking himself as an example, as an ordinary man, which he actually wasn't, but an ordinary man and, and, and accomplishing extraordinary things. And I feel like my father did that in his own quiet way in, in terms of what he, the difficulties and challenges he, he overcame. And so it, there was that dimension to it too. And, and, and also the, the moral um, kind of question around, um, what racism does to you in terms of your your personal ambitions and greed and and Frankie has this kind of um, moral dilemma around um, you know trying to achieve as much as uh, as much as he can and, and amass a fortune in order to sort of you know even the odds uh, because of what he's gone through and the deprivation he suffers but um, but there's redemption for him. I'm really intrigued by the way that you describe research leading you to places of personal overlap and, and then the research, which is a reading project, becomes very animated. And I wondered in that, in that uh, process, which can be quite exciting, have there been points where you have to stop yourself? I know speaking as a, as a writer who does research myself, I sometimes have to sort of curtail the, the celebration of material that I'm finding. And I wondered if you ever, uh, if you came to that point with, with Bucky or with uh, research uh, into other areas? Um, well, there were a lot of family stories um, that I had to let go of. You know, there were things and they that was difficult because they were sort of precious. They'd been passed on to me and my parents are now both, um, both gone. And, um, but I realized I had to, I had to let go of some of those things. Um, Bucky was definitely very enticing, and there's there's just so much material. Um, and it well, the, one of the problems actually that I had was um, marrying the two ideas around family history and Bucky. And I had a lot of people telling me not to do that; that I had to just tell a straightforward, multi generational immigrant and and um, diasporic kind of tale and I really uh, it was so important to me to bring in Bucky and the idea of this um, aspirational uh, this dream of uh, creating a utopian kind of community so um, I almost let it go and there were people including an agent who really really was adamant that I give up Bucky but but I couldn't he was already my my buddy <laughs> so that may be part of the answer to my next question, but when um, every novel, I think for, for most writers presents a challenge at some point where it feels like the whole thing might collapse or our commitment to it might flag. And, and these are the low points of what are many year projects. And I wondered if you could talk a little about 
I suppose, if you hit similar points and how you overcome them and, and how, how does the writer carry on through that moment? Oh, um, well, oh, geez, my, my husband is a great support. <laughs> I mean, you have to, you know, you have a little support group of people around you who believe in your vision, you know, but also we'll be honest with you. I think I, I have really trusted uh, readers, including my husband. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just, I, I guess I, uh, even though it's really difficult, I tell myself that no writing is ever wasted and that you just keep writing through. And you may have to throw away, but, um, but it's not wasted. It's all making you a better writer. So um, I know it's easier said than done. Um, and I've agonized over over things, and and um, I've had so many rough spots. And you know, this is why this this award is so special and meaningful. You know, it's um, because yeah, you just have to keep pushing through those difficult um, those doubts and, and difficult times. Um, yeah, that's all I can say. You just keep reading and keep writing and reading and. Yeah. And nothing is wasted is a great idea. I think that's very compelling. So I, I really appreciate that. I don't know many writers who can't make use of that wisdom. Let me ask you a final question, turning to the future. What's interesting you now? What's, uh, is there a Buckminster Fuller in your life? Is there, is there a project that is beginning to crystallize or are you well on your way perhaps to something new? Well, I'm, I'm on my way. Uh, not well exactly, but <laughs> I'm on my way. Um, and it's it feels like a new, a really a new chapter. You know, a friend of mine said, I feel like your first three books have been like a trilogy in terms of um, just the, the central preoccupation and the way that Floating City, I feel, points to the future. Um, and uh, because motherhood has, has just, you know, been such a dominant role in my life. And I became a mother kind of late in life. So um, this book is definitely about motherhood. And uh, well, that's all I can say, really. <laughs> it's sort of um, making do with what I have. <laughs> so this is my life is mothering right now. Um, uh, that's, yeah, that's what this book is. That's the starting point of this book. Well, I know a lot of people will be looking forward to it, Carrie, and I certainly have enjoyed chatting with you today. Congratulations again on the award. Oh, thank you so much, Timo. If I can just call you Timo. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Carrie, and congratulations once again. Please note, everyone, that you can listen and watch other interviews with this year's Writers Trust Career Prize winners on SoundCloud at Writers Trust or on YouTube at Writers Trust of Canada. On YouTube, you can also watch the Writers Trust Awards, Emerging Writers Edition, and Books of the Year Edition, celebrating the best in Canadian literature. 